This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. David was born in Riga, Latvia. And he told me last night at dinner that he and his family left Riga in, uh, when he was six years old. Um, and um, they traveled, uh, I think, to Italy and then to um, Austria, I believe. Vienna, is that correct? First to Austria through Hyas and then Italy, I guess. And then he had two choices. Uh, or his, his family had two choices. They could go to Atlanta, Georgia, or Toronto. And what did they pick for the wonderful weather during the month of January? Toronto. So David comes to us from Toronto. Uh, it was very easy to get, him to get him to join us. When I wrote to him last year, he immediately responded. He said, it's so difficult to leave Toronto in January to come to, Sa- to Santa Barbara, California. You don't have to twist my arm at all. So, uh, of course, David is um, a writer and filmmaker. Uh, among his um, um, writing, some of you may know his collection of short stories entitled Natasha, which was published in 2004. Um, his, second, uh, his first complete novel was The Free World that was published in uh, 2012. And then this astonishing, really extraordinary novel entitled The Betrayers um, that uh, he will tell us a great deal about uh, today in 2014. And this won one of the most prestigious awards for Jewish writers, namely the National Jewish Book Award uh, for novels. So this is extraordinary. Uh, It's an extraordinary privilege to have David here. Um, He is also, and we should say this in a whisper, a graduate of USC's film school. I say a whisper because, of course, I'm from UCLA. And... um, and have spent my life in the University of California system, but um, he, he took his, uh, uh, an MFA in uh, USC's film school, and he has produced and directed um, uh, two films, the first of which was entitled um, Vic- Victoria Day, that premiered in the Sundance Film Festival in 2009. Um, he then... Uh, has uh, done a second film entitled Natasha, uh, which was uh, finished in 2016. Um, And he's won many, many awards over the course of his writing career. And now he is the director of the Humber School for Writers, which is a very, very interesting uh, program for writers of all ages who are paired with uh, accomplished writers in which they develop their writing. So it's an extraordinary privilege uh, for us to have David here with us for this afternoon, uh, and I hope you'll enjoy it. Uh, so please welcome to Santa Barbara, uh, David Bismogius. Okay, thank you, Richard, for inviting me and for the introduction, um, also to the University of Santa Barbara. 
I guess, the Jewish Studies Department, the Taubman Symposia, for bringing me here. Uh, thank you all for showing up on a Sunday afternoon. Kind of strange to see a bunch of people on a Sunday afternoon. Have you been forced to come here? Maybe. Okay. Um, so, as Richard said, I'm going to talk mostly about The Betrayers. Um, it's my last novel and my third book. And maybe if it was my 20th novel, it would make sense for me to speak about it in isolation. But in this case, since the novel forms the last part of a loose trilogy, I'll start by putting it in context with the two books that came before it and which Richard took some time to uh, describe. So the first was a collection of linked stories called Natasha and Other Stories about a family of Latvian Jews, Soviet Jews, who immigrate to Canada in 1980, spanning two decades and told from the first-person perspective of the family's son. Those stories were a fictionalized account of my own family's immigration to Canada. This was followed by a novel, The Free World, that aimed through a different Latvian Jewish family to chronicle the Soviet Jewish experience of the 20th century. From the Tsar to the revolution, pogroms, political radicalism, Stalin's terror, the Soviet annexation of the Baltic states, Hitler's invasion of the USSR, the Holocaust, the Eastern Front, Stalin's post-war anti-Semitic campaign, its echoes under Khrushchev and Brezhnev, the Zionist awakening of the 1960s and 70s culminating in the wave of Soviet Jewish emigration that found tens of thousands of Soviet Jews in Austria and Italy waiting to be admitted to some Western country, which was my family's story. How many of you are familiar with this idea of Soviet Jewish emigration in the 70s? Yes, some. Kind of generational here. Okay. Um, so, the project behind the first two books was to depict and explain to North American readers who these Soviet Jews were, because largely, even for the people who were familiar with the history, by the time these Soviet Jews arrived in North America, um, there was a real gulf between the community that accepted them and had advocated for them politically very strongly and the people who arrived. Um, big cultural differences. Um, and I think that the people who, the Jewish community who expected them thought that they would be like their own parents and grandparents who'd come from the shtetls. Um, and what they got were highly educated, uh, very driven people who were quite divorced from their Jewish history, from religion, didn't attend synagogues, so all these things that North American Jews took as a given for what it meant to be a Jew, most of these Soviet Jews had very little um, familiarity with. And so I think that gulf remains to a great extent, though it's, you know, a lot of time has passed. But for those of you who are not familiar at all um, with these Soviet Jews and what that meant, um, a large part of this project for me in writing it was straddling these two worlds being on the one hand somebody who'd grown up in this community and was uh, fluent in the culture. I speak pretty good Russian. Um, but on the other hand, I've grown up mostly in North America. And so what I've been doing is writing books about my particular community in a way that if you are of that community, 
it'll feel authentic. And if you're not of that community, it'll feel intelligible. Um, and I think a lot of writers from immigrant uh, backgrounds find themselves doing this sort of thing, especially you know, those of us writing in English. Um, so, when I started writing and publishing the books, very little had been written about these people. And this is, we're going back to late 1990s, early 2000s. And I saw it as my artistic purpose to do for my community what I'd seen some of my literary heroes do for theirs. Writers such as Bernard Malamud, Philip Roth, Mordecai Richler, Leonard Michaels, Saul Bellow, and Grace Paley, just to name a few. So the two books were about ordinary people who had lived through extraordinary times. When I'd finished with those books, I wondered if there was any more I needed to say about Soviet Jewish emigres. And if there was, what might that be? To write more stories about Soviet Jews in North America didn't much interest me. Generally speaking, the Soviet Jews who'd settled in Canada and the U.S. were remarkably successful and within a decade or so had attained middle-class prosperity. Whatever hardships they faced weren't dissimilar from those faced by other North American Jews, which weren't dissimilar from those faced by other North Americans, of, at least of a similar class. So it seemed to me that to make too much of Soviet Jewish life in North America would be to perpetuate a sort of fetish. But there was one place where Soviet Jews had made a big impact and were continuing to do so. Well, actually, there were two places. In Israel where they transformed that country by virtue of their presence, and in the FSU, the former Soviet Union, where they transformed those lands by virtue of their absence. In 2010, when I started writing the novel, it seemed to me that we were witnessing the end of one historical epoch, that of the Ashkenazi Jew, and beginning of another, the ascendance and primacy of the state of Israel in the Jewish world. I'm just going to depart for a second or stop. When I say Ashkenazi Jew, people, could we define, people define what that is? Well, what is an Ashkenazi Jew? Audience participation? What's that? I tell you, okay. So the idea of the Ashkenazi Jew were Jews who were living mostly in Eastern Europe, uh, Eastern Central Europe. Um, they'd been there for about a thousand years. They spoke, Ashkenaz is a word for Germany. So they spoke this German dialect mixed with Hebrew and whatever the languages of the lands where they settled, whether it's Polish, Ukrainian, Russian, Yiddish. Okay? So for about a thousand years, you had Yiddish speaking Jews. Um, I think if we were to define them in the sort of most basic terms, that's it. That's what your Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi Jew is, somebody who speaks Yiddish, and a whole culture that had been built up around that language. Um, culture, a, a type of religion, a, a way of life. And for most North American Jews, they trace their roots back to these Ashkenazi Jews. So their understanding of what a Jew is um, is formed by this history in this particular type. Now, there are Jews from other parts of the world you know, the other type, you know, the other half, it's not, doesn't break down evenly, but Sephardi Jews, Jews of um, the Middle Eastern countries, uh, Spain and that sort of thing. 
But this idea of the Ashkenazi Jew, which still persists when people think of what a Jew is, well, the fact of the matter is um, that type of Jew um, with those identifiable characteristics and traits effectively no longer exists. And the lands where those people lived are now effectively um, devoid of Jews. They've moved on. And to witness, to be a part of this moment is actually quite remarkable um, and quite sad um, if, if it's something that you've grown up with and become accustomed to. You know, for those of us here who are not Jewish and have some you know, identification with your own culture, to imagine that the culture that informed and created your parents and grandparents um, that the places where they came from are places where they no longer are. The rhythms and the mentality, the psychology, even a type of emotional music that created them is no longer there, whereas it had been for a very, very long time. Um, it's interesting to find yourself in that moment, um, interesting being sort of a euphemism. Um, but at the same time, as I'm saying, there's something else happening, which is that the state of Israel, which I think a lot of people now take for granted as being incredibly important to Jews around the world, in fact wasn't for a long time. Um, so the, the focal center of Jewish life would have been in Europe at one point, later in North America, and now I would argue um, has shifted and continues to shift increasingly to Israel. Um, so it's this moment that I was thinking about in 2010, all right? Um, so, and in realizing this, both of these things were important to me in the only way that matters for creating art. They evoked a strong emotional response and prompted me to seek a dramatic form for its expression. So an obscure his historical detail provided the way into this book. In 2004, I was invited to write an obituary for a man named Alexander Lerner for the New York Times. They do this thing called Lives Lived at the end of every year. People familiar with this? Yeah. So researching it, I stumbled upon a reference to a man named Sanya Lepovsky, who had falsely denounced Lerner. So Lerner was this, he'd been a Soviet scientist. This is the 1970s. We understand it's still the USSR, right? Communism. Um, like, as an example, Cuba today or North Korea. It was impossible for Soviet citizens to travel outside of the Soviet Union without permission to leave. I think for those of us living in North America right now, when we think about a visa, we think about it in completely the opposite terms, right? If you want a visa, that means you want to enter another country. You would like permission to go somewhere else, right? In the Soviet Union, it was the opposite. You would request an exit visa. You would ask your country for permission to leave and go visit another country. And typically, that was not uh, provided, and most Soviet citizens never left the Soviet Union. Um, and there was this moment where Soviet Jews, after the Six-Day War, um, discovered a sense of national pride um, and started taking an interest in Israel, and some people said, I would like to leave. I would like to leave the Soviet Union. I would like to move to Israel. And typically, those people met with a lot of trouble. Their applications were denied, and they became what were called refuseniks. 
Um, and so Lerner was a very prominent Soviet scientist. He made application. He was denied. And he became this refusenik, and he became a leader in Moscow of the refusenik movement. Very interesting man. Anyway, so I discovered that there was this other man, Sanya Lepofsky, who was also Jewish, also ostensibly in this movement, but as, as it turned out, he was a KGB agent. He was working for the KGB. Um, and he denounced Lerner and another younger man named Anatoly Sharansky, falsely denounced him to the KGB and said that the Sharansky guy was a CIA agent. Um, the name Sharansky, those of a certain generation, people know it. Are, are younger audience members, does Anatoly or Natan Sharansky mean anything? Okay. So he was probably in his mid-20s, um, and he was denounced, which meant um, that the KGB had a show trial for him, accused him of being a CIA agent, and he was sent to Siberia, to the Gulag, for 13 years, um, falsely accused, um, and testimony was given against him by this guy who, at, at a certain point, had been his roommate. So if you can imagine that this person that you'd lived with then goes and gives testimony against you and you are falsely accused and convicted in a massive show trial um, and sent off to Siberia. So this Anatoly Sharansky had been newly married. His wife goes off to Israel and he's separated from his new wife and his parents. Um, his father subsequently dies while he's in prison, if you can imagine. Um, so this is, Sharansky becomes quite a prominent um, dissident and a hero, you know. He uh, has his picture on uh, the cover of Time magazine at a certain point. Ronald Reagan, the president of the United States at the time, actively petitions to get his release. So this is to give you a sense of who Sharansky is. Most people of a certain generation know who he is. But Lepofsky was the one who actually interested me more. Okay? And I wondered what, would hap what happened to this guy. Specifically, I was curious to know what fate befell a man who had betrayed his brothers for a country that subsequently ceased to exist. And my research provided me with only a partial answer, but it was enough to launch me into the novel and to the event, the circumstances under which these two men would encounter each other in the present day, when each is at a crossroads experiencing his own crisis. There was one more element that drove me to reflect upon these men and to write the book, morality or virtue. I wondered, as I think many people wonder, about the nature of goodness in the world and of my own fidelity to it. In other words, what enables some people to sacrifice everything for their principles while most others are prepared to compromise? In the book, the question is why one man... Tankalevich, which is how I called Lepofsky, betrays his friend Kotler. Was it pure malice? Was it opportunism? Or if he was coerced, does this absolve him? I'll also add that this question seemed particularly meaningful to me as a Jew who'd grown up one generation removed from the Holocaust. In the extreme, how would any of us have behaved? Am I what I think I am? Is morality something that can be taught? So here's how it plays out in the novel. So the book's hero, Baruch Kotler, the former prisoner of Zion, is now a minister in the Israeli government. 
As unlikely as it may sound today, and it wasn't any more unlikely in 2010 to 2013 when I was writing this book, we'll imagine that a right-leaning Israeli government has decided to unilaterally withdraw a settlement block from the West Bank or Judea and Samaria, depending on your politics. Kotler opposes this decision for reasons he articulates in the book, but to get Kotler to go along with the plan, an agent of the government is sent to blackmail him. Kotler is having an affair with a much younger aide, and he understands that if he doesn't do as he's asked, that the affair will be exposed. On principle, he refuses. The next morning, photos of him and his aide, his mistress, are printed in the nation's newspapers. To evade the scandal, he and his mistress, a woman named Leora, flee to the Crimean resort town of Yalta, where as a boy, more than 50 years earlier, Kotler had vacationed with his parents. Then circumstances beyond Kotler's control, and which I hope are not beyond a reader's credulity, lead Kotler to take a room in a private home only to discover that the house belongs to... Da, 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 Vladimir Tankalevich, the man who betrayed him to the KGB. So I should pause here for a moment to say a word about my decision to set the book in Crimea, remembering that while I was writing it in the years immediately preceding the Ukrainian uprising in the Maidan and Russia's annexation of Crimea. So on the most superficial level, I chose Crimea because it was the most prominent resort area in the Soviet Union. Everyone went there, from ordinary workers to the members of the Soviet cultural and political elite. Um, I don't know, Florida, Miami Beach. I also chose it because in the present day it was representative, meaning now, of the conditions most former Soviet Union Jewish communities experience, which is a place very much in decline, where the people are poor, struggling, and it consists mostly of pensioners, old people, who rely for their survival on Jewish benevolent organizations. There's one more reason that Crimea particularly um, suited the book. Twice in the 20th century, a little known fact, it was contemplated as the site of a Jewish national homeland, an alternative to Israel. The first time in the 1920s, after the Bolshevik Revolution and the Civil War, uh, when Jewish communities, especially in the Ukraine, suffered from terrible pogroms, loss of life, they established farming communities in Crimea. Okay? And again in the 1940s, after the Holocaust, and after Stalin forcefully removed the Crimean Tatars, who were Muslims, um, and had been accused of collaborating with the Nazis during the war, falsely accused. So if you can imagine what happened to the Tatars was I don't know, I can't remember exactly what the numbers are, but tens to hundreds of thousands of people were given basically 24 hours to gather their belongings, board trains, and they were shipped deep into Russia, many of them dying along the way. And so once those people were gone, you had all these vacant lands, and they said, well, what are we going to do with these lands? And some people proposed, well, we can put these poor Jews there who had just suffered and create a, an alternate state. So, both times, as it turned out, Stalin shot that idea down. 
and also shot many of the people who'd promoted it. So it was interesting to set the action of what is, in many ways, a Zionist novel in a land that could have rivaled Israel, a land that in its own way was as contested as Palestine, with Ukrainians, Russians, and Tatars claiming it as their own. The factionalism was what made Crimea an interesting setting, although I couldn't have predicted that it would erupt into open conflict the way it did. If I feared that any events would upend my book, I imagined it would be in the Middle East and Israel, not Crimea, the Ukraine, and Russia. In fact, while writing, I often found myself having to explain to people where and what Crimea was. And even people who were familiar with it hadn't associated it with anything more recent than the Yalta Conference, if not the Crimean War. Crimea was obscure. For plenty of North Americans, even Ukraine was obscure. The Maidan Revolution of the fall and winter of 2013 solved the obscurity problem, but created a different one. Novels take a long time to write, and events, especially in our current hyperactive world, can often outpace the designs of a novelist. I'd wanted my novel to be absolutely current, to have it be set synchronous with the time when it would be released, August of 2014. But there was no way that anyone in his right mind would flee with his mistress to Crimea in August of 2014. And even if someone chose to do it, the Yalta that he would find in the summer of 2014 would be a very peculiar place indeed. Neither Ukraine nor Russia, with far fewer vacationers on the beaches and in the hotels. In August of 2014, frankly, the plot of my book would no longer make sense. So what did I do? Grudgingly, I changed the action to the summer of 2013, believing that readers would forgive the novel for depicting a withdrawal from the West Bank that never occurred. I think all of this mattered to me more than it did to any of my readers because the essential conflicts at the heart of the book remained operative. And so we find these two men, one who is elected once again to hold fast to his principles, even if it means bringing shame and public embarrassment on himself and his family, and the other, who is sickly, barely surviving in Crimea, and whose subsidy from the Jewish community is contingent on him attending synagogue in Simferopol, the capital of Crimea, two hours away by trolley bus. It's another strange Crimean detail. It has the longest trolley bus line in the world. You can ride a trolley bus for two hours from Yalta to Crimea. People know what a trolley bus is, right? Yes, okay. So, when they meet, one man wants an explanation from the other, an apology, contrition, whereas the other wants the opposite. He doesn't feel he has anything to apologize for. He believes he suffered even more than the man he sent to the gulag, and he wants an act of public absolution so that he can go escape his miserable life in Crimea and live in... Where do you think he wants to go? What's that? Israel. Israel. So this is the irony. The man who denounced his friend as a Zionist agent considers himself a Zionist. All this plays out in a matter of 24 hours, a quarrel between these two men and their women, one a young mistress, the other a Gentile Russian Orthodox Christian wife, and its resolution hinges on Kotler's take on morality. And this is how he defines it. So he's speaking to his friend 
old friend Tankalevich, and he says, I accept that you couldn't have acted any differently, differently, any more than I could have acted differently. This is the prime in, primary insight I have gleaned from life. The moral component is no different from the physical component. A man's soul, a man's conscience is like his height or the shape of his nose. When I was in prison and knew that, I, that it would take only a single word from me to put an end to my suffering, I still could not bring myself to speak the word. It was like I had a plug in my throat, a moral plug, impossible to dislodge. This is what I've discovered during my imprisonment. I saw the human character in its naked form. I saw at one end a narrow rank of villainy and at the other end a narrow rank of virtue. In the middle was everyone else. And I understood that the state of the world is the result of the struggle between these two extremes. So this is one conclusion drawn from the book. It's an answer offered to the moral dilemma. Maybe it's a provocative answer. But if we accept that there are sociopaths and psychopaths in this world, why would we not also accept that the opposite exists? Who believes that there actually are sociopaths and psychopaths? Who believe that some, right? people have a genetic, psychological, actual, um, diagnosable infirmity? Now do we believe that the opposite exists? That the reason that some people are good is because they're just born that way. How do we, do we believe that? And that there's a limit to how good anyone can actually be. And the only way you'll know is when you're tested. To my mind, it's for these sorts of insights or revelations that we not only read, but also write books. If I hadn't spent years reading about dissidents, interviewing them, reflecting on what I'd read and heard, I would have never had this insight. And here's the other. What do we say, what to say about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which a lot of people think about and feel strongly about? I wrote part of this book on a fellowship in Harvard and attended various talks and panels where people disputed the need for nations and nation states. We're thinking, we're going back to 2011, 2012. And where such ideas were considered crude, backwards, and oppressive. To my mind, they just seemed like human nature. And now today with the rise of nativism, nationalism, and xenophobia, whether it be the forces that led to Brexit, the election of Donald Trump, the various nationalist parties across Europe, Nobody talks like this anymore. And in the writing of the book, I distilled this idea like so. Also, to understand what I'm referring to when I, when I quote from this, you should know it's a very curious feature of the landscape in Crimea. So if you drive through certain parts of it, you'll see these structures built of yellow sandstone, but they're not fully built. And it's impossible when you look at them to tell if these are really ancient structures that have been there for centuries and have deteriorated, or if they're new structures that just haven't been completed? The answer is, they're actually new structures that were erected 
for a very specific political reason and not completed. So these Crimean Tatars that I told you about that had been sent away had always wanted to return. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Ukraine um, uh, was now in charge of Crimea. And these Tatars struck a deal with the Ukrainian government that if they came back and built structures on land, they could have a particular tract of land. And with, you know, typical human ingenuity, basically they discovered what is the minimum you have to build, right, to be granted this land. And so as you drove around, you see that people had basically built the absolute minimum of what you needed to get their land. So Kotler is driving through Crimea and he sees this. And he has this thought. It was all to do with land. A measure of earth under your feet that you could call your own. Was there a more primitive concept? But nobody lives in the ether. Man is a physical being who requires physical space. And his nature is a prejudicial nature of alike and unalike. That was the history of the world. How much earth can you claim with another's consent? How long can you hold it if you haven't consent? And is it possible to foster consent where none exists? Kotler didn't know the answer to the first two questions, but the essential question was the last. And the answer to that was not favorable. So here you have the point of writing the book, to conceive of and elucidate these two simple insights. Yet simple as they are, I think they often tend to elude us. Of course, there's more to the book, various challenges I set for myself and tried to meet, to write from the perspective of a man demonstrably more virtuous than I am, a person who hasn't merely been buffeted by history, but has imposed his will upon it and changed its course. I wanted to write about Israel and Zionism in a way that felt honest and not ideological, and to leave to the extent that it matters a testament to what I thought and felt at this moment in time. If not for a wide spectrum of readers, then at least for my own daughters, which I have three, who could one day come to this book and glean some sense of their father. So the account I've provided so far covers the period when I was writing the book, 2010 to 2013, and when it was published in 2014, so those two periods. But for me, the book also has a third phase, and that's of the present day of 2018. I'm not only an author, but as Richard said, I'm a filmmaker. I've directed a couple films, um, one from an original screenplay and the other an adaptation from Natasha, which was released last year, last spring here in the US. You can find it on Amazon and iTunes. You'll love it, go get it. So I adapted Natasha about a decade after I first wrote it, written, driven by a feeling akin to the one that had inspired me to write the short story in the first place, wanting to put on screen what I'd done on the page to create an authentic representation of contemporary Russian Jewish immigrant life. So the film was, uh, was shot on location in Toronto, in the neighborhood where I grew up, and which still, um, to this day, retains a strong Russian emigre character. And I insisted the film be shot with genuine Russian-speaking actors and that the majority of the dialogue is in Russian. It's the first time such a thing has been done in Canada, and quite likely the first time such a thing was done in the United States too. 
However, when I initially wrote the short stories that comprised Natasha, I didn't contemplate that they would be anything other than stories. That wasn't the case with the betrayers. Usually, an idea will inherently dictate its own form. Short story, novel, screenplay, or stage play. Though, I don't really haven't written stage plays since I was an undergrad. But before I sat down to write The Betrayers, I deliberated on the best form to tell the story. I knew it was too long to be a short story, but because of its tight chronology, limited setting, and small cast of characters, I could see it as both a film and a novel. And in this instance, also a stage play. Ultimately, I elected to write it as a novel, which I consider the richest form. It offers not just dialogue and plot, but also the granular interiority of the characters, their thoughts, their feelings, their perceptions of the external world. I believe it's better to start with the richest form and distill down, better and more practical to adapt a novel to a screenplay than the other way around which is to a great extent why the, the reverse novelization seldom happens. However, just because a novel might lend itself to adaptation doesn't mean it should or will be adapted. Certain books, phenomenal bestsellers with demonstrable popular appeal, are obvious candidates for screen adaptation. Fifty Shades of Grey, Girl on the whatever she's on. Um... Now, but most books that aren't phenomenal bestsellers, you have to ask, why should you go to the trouble of doing it? Something about the story has to feel compelling or urgent. That it possesses sufficient valence to the current moment to make people leave their homes, find parking, pay admission, and sit in a dark room for two hours. In the case of The Betrayers, I had to ask myself five years after I handed in the book, and almost four years after publication, if the story retained enough interest and dramatic possibility for me. Would returning to the story be a pain or an opportunity? Most writers aren't filmmakers and don't have the option, remote as it is, to revise their novels after they've been published. Typically, once a book is out, it's as if it's been set in stone. And often, that's just fine. By the time you turn a book in, you're sick of it and feel like you've taken it as far as you can and the remaining flaws are there because after banging your head against the manuscript, you simply lack the capacity to solve them. However, for me, the prospect of adapting The Betrayers into a film represents a chance to address things I simply couldn't in 2013. Also, the changes that have taken place in the world since 2013 make the novel, I think, more germane than it was in 2014 when it was published. I'll put it another way. If I hadn't written The Betrayers in 2013 and was just now considering the idea for the book, I would still write it. I'd actually set it in Crimea of 2018. And seeing its annexation by Russia and the penalty of Western sanctions as intriguing added layers to the narrative. Which is to say that contrary to how I might otherwise feel about discussing a book I published four years ago, I actually don't mind talking about it with you today, so I'm still fairly involved with it. I've recently written a screenplay that I think captures the essence of the book and the dilemmas it explores. I've also arguably failed to learn the painful lesson from the publication of my book, 
and I've determined to set the action not in the safety of the recent past pre-annexation, but as close to the present as possible, once again, tempting fate. But bringing the story into the present is largely what provides the motivation to return to it, because I see in it a chance to comment on our political moment with the rise of the aforementioned strongmen, a retreat from democratic principles and the dangers posed by these phenomena. My my inclination when writing and creating art in general is largely similar to the one espoused by George Orwell in his essay, Why I Write. You guys read Why I Write? Hands, hands for Why I Write? A few. Lucky for you, I'm going to quote from it, so you're not missing out. So, Orwell writes, there are four motives behind writing. One is sheer egoism, just to prove that you're better than all those people thought you were and to get your back against everyone who doubted you. Two, aesthetic enthusiasm, because you like to play with language and make beautiful things. Historical impulse, to set something right about history that you see it in a particular way to capture it. And the last, and what he believed is the most important, is political purpose. I think my inclination is usually more aesthetic and comic than Orwell's, but it's nevertheless strongly informed by political purpose. To some subversive and non-didactic end, which is what we hope that great art will do. So this was particularly the case in The Betrayers. What I have most wanted to do, Orwell writes, is to make political writing into art, into an art. My starting point is always a feeling of partisanship, a sense of injustice. When I sit down to write a book, I do not say to myself, I'm going to produce a work of art. I'll depart from Orwell here and say, with all humility, that's actually what I do say when I sit down and try to write. Orwell continues, I write it because there's some lie that I want to expose, some fact to which I want to draw attention, and my initial concern is to get a hearing. But I could not do the work of writing a book or even a long magazine article if it were not also an aesthetic experience. Anyone who cares to examine my work will see that even when it is downright propaganda, it contains much that a full-time politician would consider irrelevant. I'm not able and do not want um, completely to abandon the worldview that I acquired in childhood. So long as I remain alive and well, I shall continue to feel strongly about prose style, to love the surface of the earth, and to take pleasure in solid objects and scraps of useless information. It's no use trying to suppress that side of myself. The job is to reconcile my ingrained likes and dislikes with the essentially public, non-individual activities that this age forces on all of us. This tracks closely, if not perfectly, with what I've been doing for these past 15 years with my writing about Soviet Jews culminating in the betrayers. It doesn't explain everything, but I often think about this essay and its sentiments and expect that to hold true for as long as I continue to write. Thank you. I don't know if I can ask two questions, but one is you mentioned before about um, your parents' generation, but not your generation. 
So one question is, how do you account for that change in your generation and, I guess, subsequent generations? And the other question has to do with the writing. Um, you said that we were basically divided along generations, that you know, those of us who raised our hands for certain things. Um, but then when you encounter young students in your writing classes, and they have not had or taken the opportunity to have the exposure to a lot of these great writers, um, is there a frustration? And how do you deal with that? with your young students? Um, I, I don't think, I think it's wrong to be frustrated, first of all, um, because I was, you know, I was an undergrad at one point, and I've lived, I don't know, 20 more years since then, had the opportunity to read more, to be exposed to more things. You know, that's the whole point of education. Nobody comes fully formed the way you are. You're there to actually, and I think people come to a university or a college to learn. So it's an opportunity to teach people. Some, and they, people come at all sorts of different levels. Um, so that's, that's not a frustration. It's an opportunity. Um, um, the other question was, forgive me, the first question? Oh, oh the politics of, of generational politics. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's true. Um, you know, I grew up differently than my parents grew up. Um, I was educated in a different system. My... Uh, my influences, my cultural uh, touchstones are different than theirs. Um, I understand where they come from, but I didn't have their experience. And I think it's often the case, uh, true of, I think, my community, that people of my generation are more liberal, for uh, lack of a better word, uh, whatever that means, um, but I think are more skeptical um, certainly of the, you know, pieties that, or opinions that my parents hold and see the paradox in them. I think it's hard for anybody to see the paradox in their own position. Um, you know, by the time you reach a certain point in your life, most people are set. You've made commitments, including psychological and ideological commitments, right? And we see it here. I mean, we basically live in a post-religious time. Um, no matter how much people in America, and America is a slightly more, uh, a country of more religiosity than, than Canada, but a lot of lip service is paid, you know, to, to religious belief. But that's not how people live their lives. And what people feel strongest about, it seems to me, um, are political affiliations, also imperfectly understood. Right? And so at a certain point you decide for whatever reason, oh, I'm this. You know, I'm a Republican. I'm going to continue to vote Republican and I believe that that's the way it has to be. And to reverse yourself is difficult. Um, in the same way that for Soviet people, whether it was people who really believed in the Soviet project, really believed in communism, um, and then at a certain point, you know, the big, you know, um, eruption was when Khrushchev denounces Stalin and says, oh, Stalin killed, you know, millions upon millions of his own people. He knew. He did it. And all these people who had believed in the Soviet Union couldn't, you know, a great many people just, they couldn't accept it. And some people still can't. 
that Stalin knew that Stalin was bad, even though all the evidence was there. He just couldn't. Um, and I think in this age, particularly, where we see how easy it is to you know, fudge history and facts um, and how people can commit to an idea even before they understand fully what that idea is and then refuse to deviate from it um, and accept all kinds of nonsense, right, without properly investigating it, interrogating it, that's just human nature. Um, but I think in a democracy, we really have to be very, very vigilant um, because, you know, some of it is rubbish, as Orwell would say, you know, total rubbish. And, and it's hard. It's hard when you believe in something, when it's, you know, when you're driven mostly by emotion. And sadly, I think, I don't know, sadly, unsadly, I think that's what people are. People are mostly emotional driven mostly by emotional, and what makes you feel good. It's really hard to accept something that goes counter to the way you see yourself and the way you see the world. Um, you know, that's where that line comes from. Um, what I read to you about, you know, uh, man is a prejudicial creature of alike and unalike. I, if we stop and think, you can ask yourself, where do you feel most comfortable among, you know, what sort of group what are your prejudices? Where do they come from? Even if you believe they're wrong, even if you know better, even if you've been enlightened, there's something in you. And that's, you know, that's in a, in a democracy where the citizenry has to know better. Um, and that's why you know, I get it. I know why my parents are the way they are or, and why, they, why it's so difficult for them to think otherwise. But difficult isn't an excuse. You know, I've, I've got little kids. They tell me it's difficult all the time. I'm like, yeah, it's difficult. It's not an excuse. Yeah. I find myself holding a mic. Um, I like your last set of comments that reminded me of Arthur Kessler's book, A Darkness at Noon. I read it bef Where? While, while writing this. I, that's one yeah. of the books I read, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Powerful... I think expose of the, the heart of darkness that lives in all our souls and can be influenced by, by evil um, and the things that we tell ourselves to justify our acts. Um, I think my thoughts haven't adequately coalesced at this moment to uh, have phrase, have be able to phrase a question, but let me offer some comments. Um, I lived in Israel in 1972 in an Opan, a language school that was also an immigration center. And I saw many, many Russian immigrants. I heard more Russian in the southern town of Arad that I lived in, uh, much more Russian than Hebrew at the time. Consequently, I didn't do very well at learning Hebrew. Uh, How's your Russian? Terrible. Also bad. <laughs> also bad. Um, but it, it struck me that these people who came from an area of the world where my grandparents came from were so different. For my grandparents, I couldn't believe that uh, they, they hailed from the same area at all. Um, they had uh, different mores. Um, they were a-religious. Um, they were very much concerned with materialism. And at that time, most of the Russian immigrants to Israel uh, had an ultimate destination that they hoped to reach, 
which was America. Um, they, weren't, they weren't planning to stay in Israel because Israel didn't have that much opportunity at the right. time. It didn't have the vibrant economy um, at, at that time. Um, so I learned a lot from that experience and I started reflecting on it and started thinking, well, maybe I should write a novel about my experience. That was 1972. This is considerably later. I got as far as an outline and, um, and a title. And now as I'm near my retirement from my chosen work, I'm starting to think, maybe I should write that novel or maybe I should just hand the plot light outline to you. Well, I mean, this is, you know, as, as Richard was saying, that's actually what the school for writers that I, you know, that I, that I uh, direct, that's what we do. So uh-huh. you don't give it directly to me. You can look up the school. We'll, okay. uh, we'll see if we can find somebody for you. But perhaps I will. I appreciate your thoughts. Thank you so much. Thanks. What's the title? Immigrant Fancy, Immigrant Flight. Say that again. Immigrant, immigrant fancy, immigrant flight. That sounds very good. I hope you're going to go. Does that guarantee my copyright? Yeah, it does. Um, You can't copyright a title, by the way, so don't worry about it. um, uh, Rabbi uh, Evan Goodman wants to ask a question. Uh, Thank you, David. Uh, Many of the students who are here are in my anti-Semitism class, and um, as I think about your family and you talked about memoir versus history and so on, can you reflect on the notion that your parents and grandparents perhaps faced of uh, Judaism, practice of Judaism being banned? So the anti-Semitism they faced in uh, in the Soviet Union at that time banning their participation in their religion while also fostering a group identity because of that very anti-Semitism. Um, can, can you elaborate a little bit on the, the anti-Semitism that, that uh, might have been experienced in, in your family history that would, would have driven them to become the people they are today? Right. Well, it's, it's not just anti-Semitism. It's also anti-religion. So, it, you know, it wasn't just Jews who weren't allowed to practice their religion. Nobody was allowed to practice their religion. You're, if you were a Christian, you would get in trouble. If you were a Muslim, you would get in trouble. If you were a Jew, you would get in trouble. Um, and, and depending on what period of Soviet history, you could get in a lot of trouble, or you could just have a lot of unpleasantness. You could lose your job, or you could be, you know, you'd have to go and, um, you know, publicly self-criticize yourself. You know, in front of all your coworkers, you'd be called in front of him. You'd say, "I'm, you know, I've erred. I've been, I've been very bad. I've done this thing. I've betrayed, you know, the principles of Marxism, Leninism, and I need to be further re-educated." So, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, as far as my family goes, I'll give you, you know, it's it's a strange thing to think about, but that I was alive at a moment in the history of the Jewish people that went like this, okay? Um, You guys know what circumcision is? Yes, you know what circumcision is, right? You realize that Jews um, and Muslims, but Jews um, are supposed to have their male children circumcised on the eighth day. We know this, generally know this. So this was forbidden um, in the Soviet Union, okay? For that reason, a lot of Jewish boys of my generation and even my 
parents' generation were not circumcised. And later when they moved to, you know, the Western world, Israel, they actually had to get circumcisions if they wanted to participate in the Jewish community. It was, you know, much more difficult. So because we're Baltic Jews and the Soviets didn't um, take control of that until the 1940s, my grandfather was raised very Jewish and both my grandparents were. Um, and when I was born, they decided that they were going to circumcise me traditionally, secretly. So my father, my grandfather, both my grandfathers, a very close friend of my father's, my mother and my grandmother invited a nurse, a male nurse, who was doing basically, um, you know, undercover um, circumcisions, right? Like the same way that, you know, abortions were done, right? Secret abortions, you would have an abortionist come and do this because it's not permitted. You would all get in trouble. Well, you would have somebody who would take the risk of ritually circumcising um, Jewish boys. It just blows my mind to think, and I can't imagine myself, but it's a fact. I was a baby. Uh, my parents took a risk. My parents also took this other risk, and they were told not to, to name me David, which was just a very identifiable Jewish name. The boy will have trouble. Don't call him this, right? And to also circumcise me, which you have to think later in life, they didn't know we were going to leave. You go through school. You go to the army. Right? It's something that you're going to be marked. Not wise in practical terms. So this was, as recently as the 1970s, a fact of Jewish life in the Soviet Union. And a decision that my parents made and a physical mark that could not be rescinded that they chose, you know, to do to me. So David, thank you for starting our winter quarter so well. I know it's so hard to come to Santa Barbara. Thank you very thank much. You. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.